Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 267. So last week we were talking about... Test procedures. Test procedures, yes. And one of the things I mentioned that we could have done like an entire episode on was stickers and labels. So we're going to have an entire 50-minute podcast about stickers and labels. <laughs> Let's go. It won't be that long, but no. yes. So test procedures, all good and great, except you have to know what's been tested and what hasn't been tested. How do you do that? Uh, I mean, there's a bazillion ways to do it. Oh, actually, no, I shouldn't say that. There's a bazillion bad ways of doing it. Yes. Right? <laughs> there's a lot of bad ways. There's very few good ways to do it. If you're doing small batches, like, you know, like 10 or 20 at a time, it's probably the best way is just like you have an inbox that are unprogrammed and then you have an outbox that are programmed. Easy to do that that way. Yeah, um, that's like, that's like the, 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 uh, how do I put this? That's like the bottom of the barrel way of doing yeah, it. Yeah, that's the bottom of the barrel. And so, but once you start scaling up, you got to think of kind of like inventory management or or PCB level tracking of what's tested, programmed, etc. What different stages of your product is in your build. And one of the easiest ways of doing that is slapping a little sticker on it that serializes your board. Um, there a lot. A question I get a lot is, can I use silkscreen to serialize my board? Technically, yes, you can do that. You can have the PCB fabrication shop like serialize each individual PCB with a silkscreen marking, but that becomes prohibitively expensive because the board shop basically has to run a new silkscreen screen for every panel because those numbers change. Um, some of them, are, depending on the fab shop, the, the lower volume fab shops, that actually tends to be cheaper because they use like a machine to like laser, like almost like inkjet print the silk screen on. So it's not as expensive because you don't have as much tooling cost. But that also tends to be lower quality on the silk screen itself. Like it is lower you get, quality. You get though. lower uh, resolution and it's just not as fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you could use silk screen. It's expensive. And it would be if you're going with a shop that uses a printer to do it, uh, not a printer, a uh, inkjet printer, uh, it would be lower quality. So depends on what you're doing. But so the best, what I always recommend to people is put stickers on the boards. And the, the thing with stickers, though, is like um, all the different ways of doing test management and program management, and inventory tracking. There's also a lot of, a lot of different kinds of stickers. I I would say most people, uh, customers that come to us, they they want serialization or tracking, except that they just that's what they give you. That's it. Yeah, we just want this. Yeah, we just want it, which is fine. It, and I I think most CMs just have that kind of internal kind of way of doing it. Um, I like to know more about the product at that point as a CM. Know um, like what kind of label do you want? Do you what kind of information do you want on? Is it just a number? Do you want date codes? Do you want a barcode? Do you want a QR code? QR code? Do you want um, what kind of serial number? Is it something that it can be like a hex code? Not a hex code. A uh, like a 
a hash number, which is like eight random characters that no one knows how to like decode. Or do you want just zero 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 one zero 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 two? And that's fine for you. Because some people don't want to tell how many units are out in the field. Um, so being able to, um, like knowing that kind of level of information is very important uh, when you say I want stickers on my PCBs. Um, so my first thing is, I guess I, no, that's not the first thing. This is the second thing. Second thing is, talk to your CM about what kind of label printers they use. Because if you uh, if you are developing on some other printer that they don't have, you're going to have to ship them a printer. Well, above and beyond that, um, not only are you going to have to do that, but you're going to have to work with them to integrate however it talks to a database or however it talks to a test procedure or test script or whatnot. You got to make sure that you have all that squared away. You can't just be like, we want this size and here's a little script. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, finding out what label printers and how your CM integrates those is very important. Um, at MacFab, we use a lot of Zebra printers. Um, there's also like Brady, there's TSC, a bunch of other different companies that do uh, printers. Um, and then the second thing is consumable items. And these are like the actual stickers themselves and whether or not you need a ribbon. Um, so what a ribbon is, is there's two different methods of transferring on act, technically just three, but we'll talk about two, two different ways of, um, actually, no, I take it back. There is only two. One is just a duplicate. The other one, anyways, you got thermal transfer and direct thermal. So th direct thermal is what everyone is usually, uh, most people are familiar with, which is like receipt paper. It's printing the paper's got a uh it's a special it's not is it a chemical? I it's, honestly I don't know. It's that one where if you run your finger across it really quick, you leave a streak on it. Yeah, because it's it's basically you're heating up a certain section of the paper right. and that's how you mark it. Mm -hmm. Um a lot of like shipping labels that go on the outside of boxes and that kind of stuff are are direct thermal printers or direct thermal labels. And the other kind is thermal transfer, which requires a ribbon that runs over the label and it heats the ribbon up and it prints onto the label. That's kind of like how a dot matrix printer would work with if anyone remembers how those work. You have the ribbon in there. Um, at Macrofeb, I typically use the ribbon more often, which is the thermal transfer, because it they tend to resist like basically the PCBA process better. They are more resistant to chemicals, washing, heat. So if you have to do any kind of rework, if you have a direct thermal label on it and you hit it with a hot air gun, it's going to turn black. It's just gone. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and so speaking of that, the next thing is label material. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, uh, so I know where you're going with this. Uh, let's let's take one quick step back and, and consider... At what step of the process are you wanting to put a label on your thing? Exactly. Uh, so, so CMs think of things kind of forward, like, oh, I buy this board, I build all these things. A lot of customers think of things backwards, where they're like, I want a product. I so they're thinking about the the end result is what they want, and all the steps that are needed to get to that end result. So, where does the sticker get placed on? De that determines what sticker you choose. 
Correct. Um, and where it goes on the board. Um, so you could put on the sticker at like the board shows up at the CM and they get stickered. That's one method that you could do it. Um, so that's like if you want to track throughout the entire process, like through stencil, through pick and place, through oven, through secondary assembly, all that good stuff. More commonly, though, is post PCBA assembly for tracking. So all the board is good and it's about to go into QA is when it gets stickered. So before it goes into QA or, or QC, depending on uh, at Backfab, we got QC and QA. Um, and so depending on where it's going in that process is when that gets stickered or not. Um, that's where most customers um, prefer to start their tracking mm -hmm. is right before that, because that's the start of the, you know, the testing and validation phase of PCB uh, of the whole process starts there. So beforehand, um, <laughs> if you're doing, I guess if you're doing some really high end stuff, you'd want more, um, like if you're doing more one-up style boards, like a big board that you want to do, okay, we want to know that this board was in this machine and the machine said it did this. And you want that associated to, with the board, then you need it before. You need it like, you know, pre-paste. Um, but most customers don't typically need that. You know, and and uh, I have an example actually from work where we have we have a board that uh, we put some some LED switches on and these LED switches um, are, have a notorious failure rate from the factory. So uh, a lot of times, not a lot of times, on, at any time we manufacture that product, after it leaves the pick and place machine, but before it goes to get through hole soldered, we do a full test phase right there because that's a great place where we can detect those switches, pop them off and rework them before going much further. Now we don't sticker the boards, but that could also be a place where uh, it, where it would make sense. And that's the, you see the problem there is is there's another stage where it has to go into a machine and into a machine that gets hot. So so if we were to sticker it there, we'd have to take that into account. Correct. And so that's where I'm going with the material is there's two basically basic kind of materials for stickers that go onto printed circuit boards. You have um, I think it's polyester. Is it uh, polyester? I believe. And then it's polyamide. Sure. Yeah. So polyamide is the hot stuff. That's the Kapton. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other is polyester. I, you know, let me look that up right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure of, because I, I almost, anytime I've used stickers, I've almost always used polyamide just because we've always needed them in that situation. Yeah. It's polyester, polyester. Uh, stickers. Um, so those, the polyester, they both, um, if you use the ribbon style, so it's the thermal transfer, um, they're very uh, resistant to solvents and all and um, abrasion and all that good stuff. The difference is how hot they can get. And so if you are the polyester typically doesn't like temperatures over, I think, like 150 Celsius, whereas the Kapton can handle like 500 C, something ridiculous. Yeah, it does six minutes through a reflow oven. No problem. Yeah. And so if you have a, if you're stickering before the um, process, before a hot process, then I would recommend polyester. If you're at, uh, not the yeah, polyester, polymide or Kapton, um, 
And if it's afterwards, like right before QA, QC, I would use polyester because the price difference is like, it's depending on the manufacturer, but five to 10 X difference per sticker. Well, not only, not only is it just a, a multiplier of price, uh, polyamide, even though they're readily available, they are m- far more difficult to get. You have to spend in different time. sizes. Yeah. 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 So if, if you don't need the hot process sticker, then don't use it. And actually you say the readily available thing. Um, that's actually, I think, I don't know. I haven't read an article about it, but, um, I've noticed the stock on Mauser and DigiKey is like one. Usually they have like 10 or like they have cases of these labels. I bought like the last roll of like Uh-oh. this one kind. Everything. I, I can't find stock. it anywhere else either. Yeah. Uh-oh. Um, so I'm like in the leap back order is like eight weeks right now. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I wonder if polymine material is, is getting hard to get right now. Like the raw material to make these labels. Maybe. Poly- polyester, there's tons of it right now. So it doesn't seem to be a problem there. So yeah, it depends on that. And then what you also, you said is, um, y'all, have that rework step mm-hmm. and so if you if you find out that your product has more rework required like a product like that i would probably even if you didn't have a hot step i would go with a polymide because then you it, you don't have to worry about you know shrinking that label mm. you know one other thing and and this is uh macrofab that has their own method of doing this uh but but you could certainly uh, implement this into your process, especially if you're doing like a large volume thing. Uh, if you have a PCB array of your your parts, like say it goes into the pick and place machine, you could sticker the whole array on the rails of the uh, of the of the whole array, such that you have tracking of an array. But as soon as they're actually populated, then they break apart and get their own individual stickers. Yeah, you could do that. that you can do. Um that gives you kind of like batch level almost and more granular than a batch, but not as granular as a PCB during the, the, uh, SMT phase. Yeah. So kind of actually what we were talking about last week as well, I feel like we're jumping all over the place here, but, uh, in, in your test procedure or, or in, in any kind of assembly document where you're talking about stickers, make sure Two things. First of all, you tell someone where the sticker goes on the board. And second, that it has space on the board. You're not putting a sticker over parts. Yeah. And it, well, it depends. Um, like one product I'm working on right now, it goes on a component, a big, big MOSFET, actually. Because um, that's actually the only spot on this board that you can put a sticker. <laughs> um, well, okay. Yeah, so, so that it, does happen. Make sure it has a reasonable spot for it to go on. Yes, it is reasonable because it's it's as a spot. This is actually a thing. It's a spot that's bigger than the sticker because if this, these stickers, even though they have really, they usually have like a uh, an acrylic um, based adhesive, so it's really good at sticking to flat surfaces. But the moment it has to overhang and you bump that overhang, it's kind of like uh, tempered glass. Tempered glass is really strong when you hit it like on the flat surface, but you hit it on the edge and it immediately shatters. Maybe that's not the best analog, but it's it's like that. It's if you have on. one of these Kapton <laughs> stickers or the polymide stickers like on the edge of your board, you can easily flick it off. 
by just like hitting it on the edge. Hmm. Whereas if it's like stuck down on on a flat surface, it's really hard to peel it up. It's kind of weird. I, it's probably the difference between like a sheer motion on the adhesive versus like a what would you call like if you were peeling it off like like chewing gum. Anti compression. Anti compression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that's called. I, I'm not a mechanical guy. Yeah. Um, expansion. You know, uh, and 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 kind of going on with with labeling uh, individual components. Sometimes it's nice to like when you flash a component. Uh, have a printer print out saying like this has been flashed this is the rev and you stick it right on the on whatever part oh, yeah, gets programmed yeah. uh i've also i've also seen like on qfn's qr codes that are the size of the qfn get stuck right to the part yeah so it, it, yeah it just really depends on what you really want to track and um what kind of information you want on your board but having more when you go to your CM, having a little bit more information than I want stickers. And there's a lot of people that just say that, though. <laughs> you know, OK, so so we're, we're we're kind of broadcasting out that CMs have this capability and most CMs do. And most CMs will work with you even if they don't have that capability. They'll figure out a way to. to yeah, they'll figure out a way in. to do it. One thing to keep in mind, though, is like CMs are not just they're not just there to do anything you want them to do. And so be reasonable with what you're asking for. Like they're not going to want to print a sticker at every stage of the, uh, of assembly and stick it on there. Like, be, and, and then also does your product actually need a sticker for every stage in, in, well, they assembly? will do that. They'll just charge you for it. Yeah. But they'll also complain about it. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and here's another one. I've actually seen this before. Uh, and and it's super annoying uh having a test procedure or an automated script that goes through and tests your fancy widget and gives a pass fail that's a great way for your to to label your product because the computer can like oh i detect a pass print out a label go ahead and stick it on great i love that but i've also seen the opposite where it prints a sticker anytime there's a failure and you end up printing bazillions of failures because, like, <laughs> if you have the wrong cable connected or something gets off yeah. or, or Wi-Fi goes down or blah, 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 whatever, a bazillion things. And you end up throwing away all of these stickers for failures. So maybe you need that. But just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, and that's a great situation where it's like, consider, do you really need to print fail stickers? Because what's the point of printing a fail sticker? Well, you're going to stick it on the board and then hand it to some what like i i don't i don't get the purpose of yeah that. a better way so what i like to do um when when someone comes to me and says i want stickers on my board for tracking for testing is what i will typically do is recommend kind of like it's called preloading I, I call it like preloading the stickers it's basically i have a database that has um just unique ids so basically, when the when the start of the tracking needs to happen, all I have is a, is a roll of QR codes that are ha all all unique IDs, for, depending on how many we're building. And usually, I just pick like a couple more digits up the up the uh, the hex code. So you have like you know possibility is like six billion combinations of of numbers and letters, right? So it doesn't even matter because it doesn't matter really as long as you don't want like incremental zero one two three four because 
you don't really need that. All you really need is a unique ID code. And then you look that unique ID code up and you can see what the system, you know, did test that one first. Okay, good. That one's serial number one then. Right. And so you go that way because that way at the beginning, you can just pre-print a whole bunch of stickers and don't have to slow down your test procedure or your or your production because like the printer messed up or like you ran out of material, like the, you actually ran out of like ribbon or something. So you just in that way, the person doesn't even have to wait on the printer. The person's just sticking on the line, sticking the stickers down. And then in your test procedure, that's when you scan it, puts an entry into a database, and then you can say, oh, this one failed. This one passed. This one, you know, V out was 5.832 volts. Stuff like that. You can you can put anything associated with that unique ID code in that database. Yeah, for sure. And <clears throat> on top of that, like if uh, only only I, I would I would suggest only caring about serial numbers to a certain degree, as in uh, if if you need tracking of serial numbers, then build a system that works with that. Work with your CM to build a system that allows you to track those things. But like Parker was saying, the the discrete individual serial number doesn't matter shouldn't matter as much. So in other words, like if you have packing instructions or it's like place serial number X through Y in this box, that would be a huge ask from a CM because they would have to go and find those serial numbers or they'd have to be extremely organized and good at putting uh, the correct serial numbers in. And then it gets into like a giant mess if something get fails or we can't find them or, or whatnot. So, uh, Use serial numbers and stickers and tracking where it makes sense, but don't just try to micromanage every single unit through your CM. So we do have a customer that's very similar to that, but we solved that problem with, because they wanted the serial numbers on the outside of case packs. Mm -hmm. And which is, so how I solved that is I made a little, little web app. This is actually way back when, when I was talking about building web apps to print Zebra printers, yep. uh, Zebra labels. And that, that was actually for this. And so you would take, so you'd have all the boxes that would have the serial number on the outside and you would just scan all eight boxes that go in the case pack and then hit print and it would print the case pack label with all the serial numbers on it. So then you don't have to go, you don't have to go find consecutive boxes and then put them in the case pack. You can just go boop, 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 and then put them all in. And, and that's, that's a really viable option uh, because that's not dependent on specific serial numbers correct like if if the, it, okay and, it is yeah. slightly different than what you were saying but yeah that's right. a way if you wanted serial numbers on the outside of your case back because there's there's a lot of use cases for that sure um that would allow you to do that easier um so on the database side the tool i've been playing around with a lot to do that is this uh application called Airtable, and I, I, I like you can do this with like Microsoft Access or you can do Google Drive spreadsheets. I've done that before. Google Drive is not the easiest thing to make a your own self-rolled application talk to. I just did that. I'm like I all I wanted to do was like upload a file to Google Drive. That took like half a day to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> but um so I've been using this application called Airtable 
it's like a spreadsheet, except it has, um, it's like spreadsheets plus, I guess it allows you to do, um, like, uh, linked lookups. And the, the cool thing about it is the, it has history for each cell and you can make like reports and a bunch of other crazy stuff. But I really like it because it actually just gives you a API endpoint for like a spreadsheet. And so you can go, hey, make an entry in this spreadsheet with an API call and put this information in it. So you can do stuff like scan a label and then the test report sends an API link up. So instead of having to do like these hack around workarounds on like uh, filling out like a CSV form, uh, like table and then like uploading that to some like MySQL database. This is just so much easier, at least for me. My capabilities, this worked out for me. <laughs> and I like it because I can hand the, um, I can hand like the login information. Well, not my login information, but I can have the customer can have their own account that is also can look at this information. Yeah, you can, you can build custom uh, views and dashboards for them. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and it's also great for uh, like the rest of the engineering team because they can just they can easily look at this information as well. Um, it's just been pretty nice tool. Not we're not sponsored at all by this tool. Um, if I find something better, I'll probably immediately switch to it. <laughs> but I like it a lot so far, and it, it's been really easy because the Airtable the API is pretty easy to use. You know, it's funny. Uh, so we use Airtable at WMD uh, for. It's, it, okay, it's it's interesting. interesting. We have yeah. we have an MRP system at at WMD, so that handles all of our builds, that handles our bill of materials, uh, and it handles you know uh, material allocation and consumption and things of that sort. But it's it's just MRP. It's pretty bad mm -hmm. at at saying, "Hey, Stephen is doing this right now, and Billy is doing that, and Sarah is doing this." Task management. It's awful at this. Well, and, yeah. and it's MRP. It's not supposed to do that. So we have tied together our MRP system and Airtable because the owner of the company has literally not been in the shop for a year, and he doesn't <laughs> want to call every single person to say, "What are you doing?" So we created Air, uh, an Airtable system where everyone can report what going on and we can move cards through our manufacturing process and he can just at a glance see where everything is going on and he doesn't have to ask any questions of anyone it and and what's what's great is we've been able to eliminate these onerous meetings where we're all discussing where, where that what's happening oh, like stand-ups yeah we've just completely yeah. got rid of them because everybody just updates their information and then the owner if he rarely has to ask questions anymore because it's just right there in front of him. So yeah, so that's a very interesting use case for Airtable because we haven't we use Jira for task management, Ugh. which has its downfalls and greatnesses. Well, we're not a software company and we don't have no. software people, so we don't use Jira. Yeah, um, yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder if. Uh, I'll, we, I'll we, take, have to take a look at that, see how well that works in Airtable. We also have, we use Airtable now for all of our RMAs, uh, which is great because yeah. we have multiple people doing repairs, including some in-house, and we have some people who work from home who get RMAs and go home and take them and, and diagnose them. So it's really, it's really, really easy to work out who gets what, what are, what are like attempted fixes and, and things. It just, yeah, turns out nice. All right, let's move on from the Macrofab Airtable gush over. 
<laughs> That's interesting that you use that tool too. I, I, I'm starting to like it a lot. Yeah, so. it's it's convenient. All right. Um, so, so I got a, I got a question real quick for everyone. Yeah. Because I have an application that um, I'm looking for a solution for. And I would have thought that there would be a, a, a simple solution, but I'm kind of running into a brick wall right now. So I'm I'm reaching out to the hive mind to see if anyone has a solution. I, I want some test equipment that basically acts as a low-frequency network analyzer. So, in other words, I want to basically plot frequency responses of my circuits. So I want to inject a signal, read the output, and just plot my my uh, frequency response. And and I'm I'm just coming up blank on good methods to to do this. And I say good as in like I would prefer to have something do it for me because I could do it manually, right? I could put a function generator into a circuit and I could step it by known amounts and then measure my amplitudes and plot it myself. But uh, having something do it for me would be, would be preferable. Uh, and, and so network analyzers are readily available and they're cheap, but 99% of the time they, they're network analyzers for high frequency they, you know, they, 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 they start at like 100 kilohertz. I would like a network analyzer that starts at like one hertz and goes all the way out to like 100K. And it doesn't have to be blinding, ripping fast. Like if, if I want to do a sweep from one hertz to 100 kilohertz and it takes 15 minutes, that's fine with me. And it would probably have to take a long time because it's acquisition time to get low frequencies would have to be through the roof. I understand that. But... It's. I'm surprised that those don't really exist, as in readily available. And perhaps I'm searching for something. Um, I'm using the wrong search terms, uh, because. But well, I'm just not coming up with with anything. So if anyone is is aware of a tool that will do this, and 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 I would like it to be moderately accurate. So in other words, like I don't want to use a microphone output or a speaker output on a computer and a microphone input. Like those are cute and those are great and all, but I'd like to have some, I'd like to have something more accurate than that. Let's just put it that way. It's something that, that actually reads voltage. And, um, months and months and months ago, I had Parker send me, uh, the arachnid lab tsunami, which was a Kickstarter. Yeah, it was a Kickstarter. It was one of the, it was in the top first 10 products we built at the fab. Yeah, yeah. And this is actually Parker's personal unit here that I have. Yeah. And okay, so this device that I'm holding, it's super cool. And it's it's effectively exactly what I'm looking for. But it it just doesn't work great. And it, it doesn't like okay, so so effectively what this is, it's a network analyzer that does zero to two megahertz. Uh sweep range which that's perfect and it runs on an arduino core which okay fine whatever i can deal with that no, no problem uh it has a dds on the output such that it can produce pretty not pretty but pretty damn accurate uh frequency output and it uh you're able to control the uh the output amplitude the thing about it is it it it's kind of noisy it doesn't do acquisition super well um, I had to write some monstrous averaging filters to get anything reasonable out of it. And uh, 
and it doesn't really like like other solutions. It seems to work a lot better at higher frequencies, past the frequencies of that I'm interested in. So if I want to plot the frequency response of one of my circuits, it seems like right now the best way to do it is to just sit there and do it, do it the college lab way, where you get a frequency generator and you just step it 50 hertz and then write down what you do and 50. But it just seems like. There's got to be something out there. This sounds like something a like a like an NI LabVIEW, yeah, uh, acquisition module would be good for. Or uh, did you, I, we've talked about this before? Did you ever do with the NI Elvis or whatever? I, I there was a lab that used that at my school, but I was not in that lab. I just saw it. It looked fancy. It, it's it's basically just a breadboard that connects to a computer via USB, uh, and I say just mm-hmm. like I mean. It, we used it in one of my electronics classes to plot frequency responses. In fact, the NI Elvis did exactly what I'm looking for, but the NI Elvis was kind of garbage because it was beat up by college kids who didn't know what they were doing. And, uh, <laughs> and like, so our, our, our filter responses were just terrible. So I don't know, maybe, like I said, I'm just confused. I, I, I may, perhaps I'm putting the wrong search terms in, but hive mind, if you know anything that suits what I'm looking for, please let me know. And it would be awesome if, uh, you know, it's, it's output capabilities were say, I don't know if it could output five volts peak to peak and its input capability was 20 volts peak to peak. I don't know. I'm just throwing numbers out there, but so, so you can get beat up NI Elvis's on eBay for two for $300. Ugh. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I remember, I remember, plotting just first order RC filters on those things and then having to write lab reports on them. And I remember my TI, uh, my TI, my TA even telling me, he was like, yeah, if you see anything weird in the graphs, just write in there. Literally, this is a anomaly due to the NI Elvis. And so like our, our oh, lab, re- yeah, our lab reports were f- completely filled with like, well, this is what it should look like, but you know, NI Elvis <laughs> or TI Elvis. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was, it was what terrible. What port is that on the back of an NI Elvis? I don't remember. It's not a, it's bigger than a parallel port. What do you hook that into? Oh, is it a GPIB port or whatever? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember. Anyways. I think it's a, a those were, those are a very cool concept. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and of course, like, of course my mind has gone like, I could just design what I'm looking for. It wouldn't be that hard to do, but I'm like, nope, nope, you can't do that. Like, I'm not, I'm not allowing myself to even think about that because it would never happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, so I found this article earlier this week, um, all about circuits and it's size does matter. World's smallest components hit the market. And it's an article that's covering like new chips that are really tiny, uh, integrated circuits that are really tiny. And it kind of touches on this one subject that I actually want to deep dive on. And it's world's smallest claims can come with trade-offs. And so what I really want to go dive into is that statement and what things as a designer and a manufacturer you have to worry about when components get tiny. <laughs> as they keep getting tinier as they yeah as they keep getting tinier and so right off the bat the first thing i i came to my mind is 
design rule checks for your PCB. As you get components smaller, you're going to have to tighten the tolerances of your traces and of your of your drill hits, your registration hits, your solder mask registration. Because your your if your pins are smaller, if that if your pin is like the width of your solder mask registration, uh, you might not even have solder mask. You might have solder mask over your pads. And so, going to different PCB design rule checks is like the first step when you start getting the smaller components, which directly drives PCB pricing. Oh, go figure. <laughs> yes, it's like the number one thing that drives your well number two thing that drives your PCB pricing. Number one is like how many layers you have. Right. <laughs> Actually, you know, isn't that funny? How many layers you have, uh, not physical size. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, different PCB design rule checks directly affecting your PCB price. So that's like, okay, if you got a product that um, you're using small, if you can get a, basically if you can get away with using slightly larger components, do it. If you can fit an 0603 component on your board, use that. Don't go out and buy the 01005 component and put it on the board. If you can fit an 0603, use it. Because uh, right now, 0603s are like the cheapest component right now, like package size. 0805s typically are more expensive per value, and then 042s are slightly more expensive per value. Right, like it, kinda, it dips like down at 0603. Yeah, it dips down right in that that sweet spot. Yeah, and then and then beyond that, it goes way up, way <laughs> way up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, also like unless you just a uh, unless you just love soldering uh, through whole components without. Oh, I'm sorry, surface mount components without a a, 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 a scope. Um, don't like. There's no point in just like peppering your board with like twelve ten size components when you could yeah. just put 0603. Yes. So that that's the first thing is is don't go smaller if you don't have to because of these reasons which are increased PCB pricing because you probably have to go with more layers to fit those components on there uh, and increased tolerances for your for your design rule checks. And then next thing is okay you start increasing your density of your pins on your components, you start getting to the point where you can't get better PCB tolerances. And so you have to start using other PCB technologies like via and pad, mm. which is it's evil, evil in quotes, um, which is basically a via on your board, a hole in your pad where the lead of your component is at your surface mount part, which doesn't sound like a bad idea, but what happens is those holes will suck um, heat away from your lead and also suck the um, suck is the wrong word. Draw is a better term. It draws it wick uh, caliper. Uh, was it capillary action? Capillary. Yes. Capillary action. Um, wicking action, basically. And it'll wick the, the solder uh, away from the joint of your, of your lead. Um, so what VN pad does is you basically fill the via with, with a non-conductive or conductive epoxy. Um, the difference between that is one can conduct electricity. One cannot. The reason why you have differences is non-conductive is typically cheaper. And so you usually go non-conductive unless you need 
current capable uh, current capability flow through than use conductive. Um, there might be other reasons why, but that's the only thing I know of. And so you would fill it with epoxy and then you plate over it. And so the via is like, can't be seen. It's like plated over. So no solder can go in there. There's other reasons you would use V and PAG and leave them, excuse me, leave them unfilled like big ground pads underneath components, but that's for a different time. Um, so you'd have to start using V and PAD to escape components. Like, like dense to BGAs. fan out the part, you have to use V and pad, and then that's a price added. Basically, you pay per via the film. <laughs> yeah, it gets expensive very quickly. Yes. Um, so that's the big thing there. And a long, long time ago, Stephen wrote an article on our blog that is like still our number one article for people hitting. And it's yeah. about um, escaping BGAs. So we'll put that link. And that kind of covers this. It's like it covers tolerances and calculating how, how out to do it. how to do it. Yeah, the, when the, you the need to increase thumb, your yeah, uh, increase your layer count, right? Yeah, yes. It, so for uh, for every if, you, if for every two layers of balls on uh, a BGA, you you add two layers uh, to your board. So if you if your BGA only has four balls on it. Uh, you you only need a two layer board, but as soon as you start to get more and more, for every two layers, add two. I'm sorry, uh, two rows of balls. You add two layers to your board, and so when you start getting into those bigger BGAs, you can count and estimate right away how many layers your board is going to be. To uh, it, that's if you need to have access to most, if not every ball on your BGA. Uh, so. It at least helps you kind of get a guesstimate as you're looking for parts. And then the other thing with that is you also get to a point where VN pad won't be enough. And you have to switch you also you have to switch VN pad and also micro vias and um or also known as like uh basically blind vias. Um micro vias and blind vias are almost the same thing. So that, what that means is it's a hole that doesn't go all the way through the board at that point. And so that you could stop at a certain depth and that way you can have traces on different layers. Like to basically start running into annular ring tolerance, tolerancing problems of these vias and you need to stack them closer and closer together. So you need to have the annular rings on different layers and not be on other layers. Yeah, it starts being like this whole 3D Tetris puzzle of annular rings and traces underneath these packages. Um, it gets messy really fast. Yes. Um, so that's another thing you got to think about when you're starting to get small with the components. Um, the other thing that people don't really think about is silkscreen. When you're starting to do these, I call high density designs, you get to the point where you can't put silkscreen on the board that's meaningful of like where C1 or U12 is at. Um so, so it becomes your documentation package that goes with your Gerber's or your ODB++ file becomes even more important because you don't have designators on your board that tell you where to put parts now. You have to know U1 is here because of a text file that tells you now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's usually like a part placement file. Most EDA tools generate that now. Um, that's actually like the MacFab platform uh, 
requires that those kind of files, so it's not too big of a deal. Um, and depending on the board's like assembly documents that go that like a PDF that will show where those parts are at are at as well. So it's more of a visual guide than a uh, text file. And then kind of more on the CM side is tooling starts to get more expensive. So at Macrofab, we've got a machine called a paste jetter, a micronic paste jetter. And so what that allows us to do is um, for small orders to not have to pay tooling fees for a stencil. And um, because they basically think about like a, a laser inkjet printer that instead of depositing ink on a, on a piece of paper, it actually dive bombs solder paste at the at locations on the board. And it's actually really cool. You watch the videos of these, like the, how it works. It like releases it ahead of time and has a, it like projects where the solder paste is going to land on the board in a slight parabolic arc. It's pretty cool stuff. But the problem with that is that there's only, a, there's a minimal dot size and it's 12 mils in diameter. And so um, what we, on our end is we have a DRC tool that we'll look, we're looking at the paste, we're analyzing the paste. And if your dot size is smaller than that, then we require a stencil because we our paste jetter can't uh, paste jet that small of a size. And so you have to pay for your tooling for a stencil. And so it's not that expensive in high volume. Like, you know, you pay a couple hundred bucks for a stencil. So it's not too big of a deal. Now, let's say you get an even smaller components, smaller leads. Now you're talking about more expensive stencils because you need special coatings that the paste can actually release. Because when you get a really small opening, I mean, that paste is like peanut butter. It wants to stick around on the stencil. It doesn't really want to release um, uh, off the off the stencil. And so... You need like there's like nano slick, gold slick. There's a lot of different like name brand. Yeah, they're they're call, all the same like electro wash or electro polish uh, on on all the apertures. On top of that, if if your board incorporates uh, items that have uh, really really tiny apertures, but then some that have very large apertures, you end up having to get step stencils, which have different levels and thicknesses and heights, such that you can properly apply the right amount to the big thick pads and the, just the right amount to the small pads. And and anytime you have like specialty custom stuff, just like, you know, dollar signs appear in your eyes. <laughs> um, but tooling's not, it's a, it's a cry once kind of thing for this kind of stuff. Um, you typically buy it once and then... It's a cry every prototype. That's what Yeah, cry every, if we need a prototype phase, yeah. <laughs> and the thing about... Actually, that's one, one thing that has popped in my mind about step stencils that I haven't actually thought of or looked up yet is wouldn't you, if you had a step stencil, so you had an area of the stencil that's thicker. So let's say it was... Uh, you had one area that is... Got the smaller apertures, so you have a thinner foil. Let's say you were doing like two mil or three mil foil. And then most foils are four mil thickness um, stencils. But let's say you had a big MOSFET that needed a lot of solder pad on its, on its, on its, uh, it would be its drain. Depends on the remember. situation, but yes. yeah, it depends on the package. I think most of them are drain. The big tabs that drain on like a TO, uh, TO220. Um, and so you need to put like a six mil 
like stencil there, which is that's ginormous, but you know, could be what you need. Um, if you try to put those components right next to each other, you're going from a six mil thickness to a two mil thickness stencil. And so you're going to have this like that because how the stencil machines work is it squeegees it across. And well, now there's a gap in that squeegee. I want, how do you handle that? I don't know. Uh, do you just not worry about it? Like you don't have to worry about like the shadow of like the squeegee step. Yeah, the the amount. So we deal with that. At, like we use step stencils quite a bit now um, because we have a lot of surface mount um, headers that we use for board to board connections. And, and so you had those thicker. We do build up on almost every uh, PCB SMT header that we do. So what what thickness do you normally run there then? I think we do four or five, or or uh, a five six somewhere in that range. On, on the headers yeah. and then a four everywhere else. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. 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 But we also do the polished uh, stencils and uh, we Ooh, just high dollar. Un- well, you know, I mean, we do enough volume that uh, they're, they're, they're not too bad. Yeah. Again, it's one of those, it's a cry once and it's like, okay. We just purchased a brand new printer in December, um, got it online last week of December. And um, we've been running that. And it, I, I put, I put these, these boards under the uh, the fresh pasted boards under the scope, they're flawless. I mean, like if you have a corner, a ninety degree corner on an aperture, and you look at the paste, that paste has a ninety degree corner on it. Like this stuff comes out absolutely perfect. The the, the solder balls are ninety degree as well. Yeah, yeah, like they yeah. If you if <laughs> they got you pressed, <laughs> if you want the if you want like I don't know some random shape aperture, and you pasted that, it would come out perfect. I mean, we it's were amazing. talking about that in our Slack channel a couple weeks ago, and uh, different. We were talking about like different aperture shapes for um, solder paste, mm-hmm. yeah. And because like there's the like, you know, normal squares, and there's like a home plate design, and there's a C shape, and these are old designs of paste to kind of like help eliminate tombstoning. Mm-hmm. And I came up with the with, with the star shaped. Should have star shaped. What, what was that for? I can't remember. Well, someone came, it was it was um, I think it was Tom Anderson. He mentioned uh, one company was doing moon shaped like crescents. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And so I'm like moon star. <laughs> so we have star five pointed stars, <laughs> and that would be like the best shape. Oh yeah, go figure. Yeah, because it's yeah. <laughs> Random tangent. Yeah. So yeah, so I guess I guess you don't worry about then. Uh, don't worry about what uh, you don't have to worry about, like the shadow of like the step, you know, uh, and, and, and the funny thing is, OK, so the answer is no, but maybe we should. I haven't had to yet. I haven't had a problem with it. And uh, we do have, you know, uh, uh, as small as 0402s close to these uh, surface mount headers. And I haven't run into an issue with it yet. Yeah, I guess it would be if um, this might be asking a little much, but like. Next time you run the squeegee over it and see if there's like any pace shadowing in that step region, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or is does that pace jetter, not pace jetter, uh, pace printer apply enough pressure where it can squeegee that out of that that step? Well, that that would defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? Like, because then it would just depress the <laughs> the buildup area. Well, it could be the the blade is is flexing. 
It could be. It, it could be. I, I doubt it, though. Um, you know, I need to look at it the next time um, the next time we run one of those, which we do. I'm sure we run one of those multiple times a week. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can if I can take a look at it, because now I'm thinking about it. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we, we do get to um, we, we do get to uh, we have control over how much force the squeegee presses down on the board. And we actually have we with. Oh, we got this really cool uh, new feature on this printer where it has a bed underneath that has it's like a bed of nails, but they're all but they're all on uh, little plungers. And what it does is it applies uh, like your board comes in and gets clicked in by the conveyor and then compressed air pushes all of these plungers up. But it, but it's it's very light. So it just makes contact with everything. And then these pins come out and lock all the pins in place. So it gets this 3D uh plate that your board can rest on such that when you do put pressure with the uh uh with the squeegee it doesn't deflect the board at all and so you know the first time it goes through whatever the bottom of your board is flat but if you're doing double side assembly now all of those plungers conform to all the parts on the other side of the board yeah it's super cool that's a cool that's a cool so next next time i'm up in denver i'm gonna have to go look at that machine (laughs) yeah it's 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 really cool and and i've uh, you know the uh the the micronic that macfab has i was always astounded at how fast it can paste a board but then i then i see one of these machines it's like eight times faster (laughs) yeah well that's that's the trade-off is the the micronic paste jetter is infinitely you don't have to buy tooling at all but it just takes a little longer mm-hmm. and there's a limitation on how small of an aperture right but the moment that you're like okay we're going to print like 100 panels yeah the the it's a no brainer to go to a stencil machine i mean the, yeah absolutely like in our assembly process um the the stencil printer is always waiting on the pick and place machine there is yeah. never like a pause the other direction. I really want to see that uh, the, the fingers. I can't remember the name of it, uh, but yeah, it's it's super cool. Well, we only talked about thirty minutes with stickers. <laughs> not not the full hour. Not the full episode. Cool. Well, with that, that was the Macrev Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig, and Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Let all your friends know about the podcast. And also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macfab.com slash Slack. I think we just reached over 555. Hey, 555-timer. Uh, people actually we're at 556 now so we're a dual 555 so see you there